Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and our guest today is Dr. Sonia Wallbank, People Director for an Integrated Care System and Part-Time Senior Consultant to the King's Fund. You can find her on Twitter at Sonia Wallbank. Sonia, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Hello. Can we start by you telling us a little about your career to date? My career was different. I started out working in banking, of all things. So HSBC was my my first place of work and I made my way to, to regional manager. Then I, I met my lovely husband a bit later on in that career and we decided that we'd have a couple of years abroad and, and have some children. So um, I started to think about why my girls were behaving in the way that they were and wanted to understand that in a bit more detail. So I started to do some modules in psychology and I just absolutely got hooked. So I ended up doing an undergrad degree and then a doctorate in psychology. I got the opportunity as I was doing that work to start to support and see staff working across the hospital settings. In, in Leicester, we work really closely with the university uh, and the hospital. So it was it was really interesting. And I started to think about restorative approaches to how do you do really tough work that's just day in, day out for you, but also look after yourself. So I've been doing both employed and consultancy spaces through the NHS in various guises. Spent the last few years in uh, NHS England working on the pandemic um, responses, supporting and, and looking after people through that time. And now working as people and OD director, as well as my King's Fund role. So I feel like I have a really varied just day to day it's brilliant. In 2013 your work on restorative clinical supervision for NHS Midlands was a finalist in the Nursing Times Award. How did that come about? I think we recognised that what staff needed was an opportunity to work through burnout, their stress responses, increase their compassion, satisfaction, so pleasure that they get from their job. I think a lot of the time people come into this work really wanting to deliver the best care they can, but they don't necessarily take the time and space to notice the marks that it's leaving on them. So I, I spent some time, probably since my doctorate, really just trying to work with people, prevent them developing more serious conditions, publish a set of resources so that people could pick up those, support themselves, start running projects inside their own organisations knowing that the exposure that we have to stress, trauma, burnout, those types of negative emotions, that's not going to change. It's part and parcel of the work that we do. And my goodness, we've had it in shed loads through the pandemic. We got put in for the awards um, with the Nursing Times, and it was just a brilliant opportunity, again, just to showcase both the work, but the stories that came alongside that work and, and how we probably could think about this in a different way. And nowadays you work four days a week in organisational design for an integrated care system, as you mentioned, and one day for the King's Fund. Do you have a preference for one over the other or do they complement each other? I definitely think the ICS work is powerful. I think it really helps me to understand the reality of what we're up against at the moment, both as a response to the to the pandemic, 
but also just that day-to-day work. So it brings a real sense of truth and delivery through into the Kingsman work. I think feeling connected to the people and the leaders who are undertaking that work in the system really helps me ground the, the, the Kingsman space. And then the day a week at the Kingsman is brilliant because it allows you to think about those more hopeful options. So what might an ideal workplace look like? How can we get health and well-being throughout our organisations? How do we thrive in that space? And they're not often conversations that people are open or available for in the system at the moment just because of of how busy they are. So I think the balance for me is is absolutely perfect. And I, I probably wouldn't want to choose one over the other without feeling I'd lost something from both. Your thinking has informed the health and wellbeing response for NHS staff during the COVID-19 pandemic. Would you like to tell us more about that? So I think for me, if I'm honest, it's probably one of the most important roles I've done in my life. It felt truly significant to be really thinking about how do we get this right for staff? We could already see in in March of 20 what was coming over the hill from Japan, from from how other countries were, were dealing with this. So we knew it was going to be big. We absolutely started with the premise of what we needed to address and how would we be able to support staff who were basically tired already from the work that they were doing. And I don't mean tired in a just need a bit of a nap and can get over it, but absolute burnout, stress and and their well-being kind of at, at a low ebb. I think we started with how do you get the basic needs right and what do we need to do to support organisations to put those things around I mean, we had such a brilliant response commercially from organisations sitting around hospitals, lots of food and blankets and warm things just turning up at hospitals. So a real a real partnership. And then my job, I think, was around letting staff know what was going to happen. What would they expect at the peak of the pandemic? What were they getting ready for? So they weren't just getting anxious in a vacuum. They could really think about what would a natural response be to this? How might I work through some of the worries? And it's the first time, Chris, I think in my career where work has so touched home. So you're not just thinking about yourself, you're thinking about your family, you're thinking about what else is going on around me, how might I respond in the best way? So we knew that we would be faced with difficulties, but really thinking about what would be best for staff. We built up some really great partnerships with the voluntary sector, specialised services such as our mental health teams across the country. And we just had such a brilliant can-do attitude from everybody. Now, of course, at the time we were creating this, we didn't realise how long the response was going on for. So I think that's now the trick is, my goodness, how do we keep staff going, making sure they're being rested and, and looking after themselves? But for me, I've never seen such a brilliant moment of people coming together and working together. And it just gives me hope for the future that we can do this again. When you say you address the basic needs first, could you tell us more about what you consider basic needs to be? Yeah, so the the, ca- the cafes were open. That was always our first kind of, you know, if you can get a cup of tea in this country, you're OK. <laughs> and so just having 
cafe facilities through through the night. One of our um, brilliant colleagues in one of the local hospitals in London, they've just had a machine with all snacks and stuff in that are look fresh and lovely that they can get at any time. So I think we're evolving our thinking about how do we make hot food available to staff through the night. We've got the vans from various supermarkets into car parks so that staff could order their basic essentials because they were working such long hours getting home then thinking about food and if you remember at the time there were the kind of rations around food so really making things available to staff and then just thinking about how much we expected people to carry emotionally what what was it that they were going to have to be exposed to and access and we've got brilliant examples of doctors nurses allied healthcare professionals doing work that was probably a bit further away than they had envisaged their work would be really up close with patient care really sick patients that they were looking after so again knowing that what they were exposed to was going to be outside of their norm it was going to feel different that they would maybe want to take some time and space to think about that felt like they were our kind of key priorities in my interview with Michael West in November. Michael shared some of his favourite interventions by healthcare employees in support of staff wellbeing during the pandemic. You've hinted at a couple there, but do you have an example, do you have a favourite example that you'd like to share? For me, it was about seeing the whole person. So for the first time in the NHS, we started to really think about what's it going to be like for a mum or dad going home and having to explain it to their children. So all the children are feeling worried and anxious about, gosh, mum or dad is being exposed to this awful virus. And we we didn't know at the time what would the ramifications of that necessarily be. So I I remember one of our team working alongside some school children, just designing some brochures and literature around how do you explain the virus, you know, to a three or four year old from from a healthcare um, professional perspective. And so we ended up with a whole range of materials that staff could use to start to have those conversations with families. For the first time for me, it felt like we were supporting the entire family to let mum or dad go into the hospital and not that we were creating additional anxiety and stress and worry for them. And holding that family unit together just felt so critical at that time. And are there any other lessons from the pandemic that the NHS ought to think about sustaining, I guess? Yeah, for me, the the emphasis in 2020 was around health and well-being was absolutely critical. We, We all came together. We absolutely knew that this was a priority. And then the cost of us continuing to do that is is either an organisational response, it needs to maybe be a wider system response. And where does the cash come to do that at a time when, you know, everything is tight, everything is being reviewed and we're not necessarily in a position where we can continue to throw money at a system that is struggling. So I I think for me, it's how do you support organisations to prioritise the health and well-being almost as an upfront investment recognising that the benefits of that might not be seen in the immediate term, but certainly will keep staff being able to come back to work in the longer term, reducing the amount of time that staff have to take off sick because they're just not coping or they're, they've become unwell by their work. And for me, just the recognition of the health and well-being of staff has to be uh, a critical response for us. 
that the work that they're doing is likely to make them sick at some point because it requires them to give of themselves rather than believing this sort of picture of doctors, nurses, allied health professionals. You can just come in and do this work and not be touched by it. I, I think the pandemic has shown it's it's impossible to do that. In the 2021 NHS staff survey, 33% of staff said that their trust takes positive action on health and well-being, which leaves two-thirds of a staff in a situation where the trust is not taking positive action, presumably, or at least if it is, they aren't aware of it. Why would you say that is? Trust organisations, have they have a responsibility to be very careful about what they spend and how they spend it and the way in which they look after staff. I absolutely think the pandemic was a real sea change moment where we demonstrated to staff that actually we do care about your ability to come in and work and give your whole self into this space. Perhaps prior to the pandemic, that that was your responsibility and that merge of me as a person coming into work and delivering in this space didn't didn't feel quite as aligned as it as it does still today with with the ongoing um, effect of the pandemic. I, I think for me, it's about making decisions that are sensible around you'll not keep staff in work. You'll not keep nurses coming to work every day if we don't start to look after people and make an absolute decision that looking after keeping people well, doing the work that they do is part and parcel of what you get when you come and do some of these roles. So in his last interview with me, Michael West said that there have been a sea change over the past two years in the leadership approach adopted by the NHS. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's that classic. I was thinking about the innovation adoption time frame. You know, it's almost like we've reached the peak of people can see the difference that having a positive leadership model, that leading from the front and doing things together across boundaries that we haven't crossed before. So, you know, local authorities and and organisations in health working so much so much better together. I think we find ourselves with organisations who are under financial and workforce pressures and that we we lack the infrastructure sometimes and the expertise to do something with this now. And I think that's the decision that we've got to make is that we've seen this huge shift because we've had to shift. Now, if we spend too long thinking about it, we probably won't do it. So what is it that we can take, what the lessons that we can take from the pandemic and really start to act on in terms of how we really put the health and well-being of people right at the front and centre of our future policies? So what's your view of the work that's been done in the NHS on compassionate leadership and how it relates to your own work on restorative supervision and well-being? The idea of being compassionate in a leadership space to develop the way in which we work with staff is, is brilliant. And in my experience, it absolutely splits people. We're only having this conversation this morning in the fund about if you believe that being compassionate is a softer and less effective way of being with staff, you might not get the performance if you're compassionate. And therefore, there's a question mark and people really avoid that sort of culture of compassion conversation. I think our role is how do we help people think about what are the needs of staff? How does that relate to the needs of patients? 
And how do we create a future for the health service that will continue to attract people who want to work in an environment where they feel that they can thrive? And for me, the more compassionate culture we work within, somewhere I definitely see myself staying despite the challenges, I think you'll spend less time restoring the energy and actually see people be much more effective because the job takes care of the whole self rather than just an element of it. So now we have a series of questions that I ask all my guests. What is your proudest achievement in, in your career to date? I'd have to say the health and wellbeing work for sure. I have three beautiful awards from Personnel Today and a great team that I am still in touch with. So um, I think I've made some great friends for life and, and just absolutely felt real meaning and reward from the work. So, yeah, pr proud of that. Absolutely. And would you be prepared to disclose your biggest mistake and what you learned from it? For me, it was taking on an executive role in an organisation that was broken and the way that it treated its staff probably reflected the amount of breakage that the organisation had. There were lots of people who were leaving and I think I went in, you know, I, I know better, I can, I can absolutely help uh, and support. And for all of the difference that I, I could make and was available to make, I think there were lots of people who were doing things very differently and perhaps in a, in a less effective way. So now, now coming back out from it and I think about that in an innovation and adoption cycle and think, you know, I was just, it was too much for me just to be making a difference. You had to have some uptake from others in that space. But, but I learned a lot and I also learned a lot about myself and felt ultimately brave that I was able to, to leave and reflect on it rather than stay and be sucked into. And is there a person or experience that has inspired you on your journey? I was thinking about this as a question and there are just so many wonderful people in our in our broader NHS. But I think probably Dame Emily Lawson, who was the commercial director for NHS England. And I had the opportunity to, to work with her on a few programmes prior to the pandemic. But during the pandemic, just watching her leadership style and sense of what she was capable of just coming into its own she led the PPE and the vaccination program and just getting to work with her again through that program it, even under pressure and under the busiest time you can imagine she paid attention to diversity she would think about what the right leadership she needed around her at all times and I'm not not saying for a second that that she got everything right and I think that was part of the beauty of it is watching her learn from those mistakes and verbalise that with us was just really powerful as a leadership lesson. So, yeah, I feel really privileged. Is there a book, podcast or video that you recommend to aspiring leaders? Yes, I, I'm, an, I'm an avid reader. Um, so, again, I would like to, to just promote, have a real range of things to read, because I think that's, again, really important. My favourite book is a really old one. And I recommend it to anyone who will ever listen to me, which is Dale Carnegie's How to Make Friends and Influence People. And uh, definitely not a new read, but it, it feels like it's had the, the biggest impact around being, you know, not being unkind, not being difficult, but just really thinking about how do you influence? How do people perceive you? Not everybody's going to like you and that's OK. But actually what you want to do is, is to teach them some lessons. And I, I couldn't 
I couldn't possibly comment on that without saying Brene Brown and the Dare to Lead series, because they just, again, feel really powerful in terms of the, the way in which she helps you think about some of the more challenging areas. And uh, what does your self-care regime look like? So for me, surround yourself with the people that you love and things you enjoy to do for absolutely as a start. Uh, laughter is very important. There's probably not a day goes by where I'm not having a little chuckle with colleagues about something that's that's happening. I have three wonderful girls in my life. My my children are really important to me. My husband was really poorly a couple of years ago and, and very well looked after by our, our wider NHS. So I think for me, it's it's just keeping a watchful eye on not giving everything into a role, making sure that you're reserving that time and energy to, to be mum, dad, sister, cousin, whatever that space is for you. And noticing the transient nature of some of the challenges that we're up against and the impact that that's having on you so that you're taking time and space to look after yourself. And finally, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? <laughs> Apart from the really poor dress sense, but I think keep going for sure. Uh, you're on the right tracks and all will be well. I think I have challenged myself in a number of ways over the years, just thinking about the right thing to do and, and trusting your instincts and, and having the confidence to know that things will be well, I think is, yeah, really great. Well, thanks, Sonia, for such an insightful interview on health and wellbeing. There's lots there that I'll be pondering over for sure. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at damflask-consulting.com. This episode was recorded by Teams and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records.